Today's episode is brought to you by the Shehnai Virtuoso and Other Stories, the best stories of the Gujarati short story pioneer, the Gujarati Chekhov or Tagore, Dumketu, and translated by Jenny Bott. This is the first ever book-length English translation of his work and the first ever Gujarati to English translation being published in the United States. Jennifer Croft, the award-winning translator of most recently The Books of Jacob by Olga Tokarczyk, says, Dumketu is a wonderfully gripping storyteller, and Bot has certainly done him justice in this excellent selection. The Shanai Virtuoso is out July 26 from Deep Vellum Books and available for pre-order now. Today's episode is also brought to you by Emma Seckles' The Wild Hunt, a debut novel rich with historical detail, a skillful speculative edge, and a deep imagination. Set on an island off the coast of Scotland, the novel tells the story of a young woman determined to forget the sorrows of the past and the ominous bird-like creatures of Celtic legend that force her to investigate the truth at the island's dark heart and reveal hidden secrets of their own. Says Brendan Matthews, Emma Seckles' debut crackles with dark energy, conjuring a world where the skies are full of crows, ghosts walk the moors, and the islanders are haunted by loss. Seckle knows how to write heartache, but these pages are also bursting with a fierce love for the living and the dead. The Wild Hunt is a wonder of a novel. The Wild Hunt is out on August 2nd from Tin House and available for pre-order now. Before we begin today's episode with Wahini Vara, I did want to mention a couple noteworthy things. For one, as you will soon learn, Wahini, prior to being a novelist and still, is a long-standing tech journalist who's also interested in the intersections of technology and writing, probably most notably in her award-winning essay, Ghosts, where she engages with an artificial intelligence called GPT-3, that takes a sample text that you provide and continues the story for you. She wonders if this technology could be useful for writers writing into experiences that seem to defy language, to resist words. For Vara herself hadn't and couldn't write into the grief she felt around the loss of her sister until she became progressively more engaged with GPT-3. She talks about this and reads one of the most remarkable sections of this essay for us in the Bodhis Audio Archive. This joins many other incredible contributions to the Bonus Archive, whether Viet Thanh Nguyen talking about the importance of and reading Maxine Hong Kingston, or Miriam Chancy teaching us as she reads from Jamaica Kincaid, to a craft talk by Marlon James, to poet Karthika Nair talking about the poetic form, the canzone, and why she would use it particularly for a poem about Kunti from the Mahabharata. Bonus audio is only one of the possible benefits of becoming a listener supporter. Every listener receives a resource-rich email with each episode, with the best things I discovered preparing for the interview, and many of the things referenced within the interview whether the books by Dalit writers we discussed today or Wahani's essays on everything from why Silicon Valley doesn't hire black coders 
to the competitive world of Indian American spelling bee communities, there are many other possible rewards and gifts too, from back issues of Tin House Magazine to the Tin House featured new release, which has just been updated to the Irish author Parak O'Donnell's new book, The Maker of Swans. But every now and again, a past guest reaches out with something particularly generous and rare, often something available for only one or a small handful of lucky future supporters of the show. Whether that be Nikki Finney's handcrafted box of limited edition books, to New York Times poetry columnist Lisa Gabbert offering a consultation on a poem. These don't happen very often, so I, I wanted to mention the latest one from past guest poet Mary Kim Arnold, the author of the remarkable collection of linked lyric essays slash memoir about her adoption from Korea, the litany for the long moment, and her equally remarkable poetry collection, The Fish and the Dove, a book that engages with the history of occupation and the legacy of the Korean War, and of which she says, in it I bear witness to what girlhood, womanhood, and motherhood might mean in the context of family, nation, and history. She joked to me that someone had recently called her a maximalist, and her offer for one lucky future supporter is definitely one of maximum generosity. For this person, she's offering signed copies of each of her books, as well as a textile created especially for you, either a bojagi, a, a Korean wrapping cloth, or a handmade wall hanging, or another textile work where you will be offered a few choices for personalization in which she will hand stitch. And if that were not enough, she will include some special gifts, chapbooks, broadsides, and other ephemera from small presses that she loves. So you can check this all out, everything from the Tin House new release to the bonus audio archive to these grand and generous gifts from past guests by heading over to patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's episode with Wahani Vara. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, writer, journalist, and editor, Wahani Vara, studied international relations with minors in economics and creative writing at Stanford University. 
She was also on the staff of the Stanford Daily, having previously interned at Denver Post and Stanford Magazine, and was selected as the first Daniel Pearl Memorial Journalism intern, allowing her to work in the Foreign Bureau of the Wall Street Journal. Ultimately, she became a staff reporter for that newspaper and remained so for nearly nine years. As an upstart young reporter, she covered technology companies and was the first reporter there on the Facebook beat, a company founded the same year she began at the paper. And she engaged with Mark Zuckerberg before Facebook was the phenomenon it is today and other already iconic CEOs like Larry Ellison of Oracle. She ultimately pursued an MFA in writing, however, at Iowa, where she began the novel we'll be talking about today, graduating in 2010. Vara eventually left the Wall Street Journal to launch Currency, the business section of The New Yorker online. She edited the business section for The New Yorker and regularly wrote for them, both on business and politics, She's also been a staff writer at the California Sunday Magazine, a contributing editor for The Atlantic and for the Fuller Project for International Reporting, and is an ongoing contributor for Wired Magazine, writing feature pieces on technology, as well as a story editor for The New York Times Magazine. Her journalism has won the South Asian Journalists Association Award and been recognized by the Asian American Journalists Association and the International Center for Journalists, among many others. Her creative writing can be found in Tin House, Ziziva McSweeney's. Her story, I Buffalo, won the O. Henry Award in 2015. And her fiction has garnered her honors from the Rona Jaffe Foundation, Yado, and McDowell. Vara is also a mentor at the Lighthouse Writers Workshop Book Project, the Secretary for Periplus, a collective that mentors writers of color, and is on the board of the Krishna D. Vara Foundation, which awards an annual scholarship to a graduating high school student at Mercer Island High School in memory of her sister Krishna, who died of cancer in 2001. Vara's engagement with tech-focused journalism and her pursuit of creative writing have sometimes met with fascinating results. Her interest in GPT-3 an artificial intelligence model being trained to write human-like text where you provide it with text and it completes a piece of writing with it became a way for her to engage with her sister's death in writing, a topic she had long avoided. But the more honest she would be in the sample text, the more interesting stories GPT-3 would generate in response. Vara's resulting essay for the Believer magazine, Ghosts, was named by Longform and Longreads as one of the best essays of the year. It will be anthologized in Best American Essays 2022, and it was adapted for a This American Life episode called The Ghost in the Machine. Wahini Vara's debut novel, 13 Years in the Making, is also an enticing meeting of her life in the tech world and her creative, imaginative work in fiction. The Immortal King Rao is out now in the U.S., India, and the U.K. with W.W. Norton, HarperCollins, and Grove, respectively. With starred reviews from Booklist and Publishers Weekly, Anjali and Jetty for the Star Tribune says, At its heart, the thrilling debut novel, The Immortal King Rao, is a jarring and meticulous critique of how progress is often confused with goodness. Can faster, more efficient, and more accurate technology bring about equality? Can code 
find a way to deepen human beings' connection to one another. For the New York Times, Justin Taylor calls the immortal King Rao a monumental achievement, beautiful and brilliant, heartbreaking and wise. And finally, Karan Mahajan says, Vara comes out the gate with a masterwork, a book that is three great novels in one. The tale of a thriving and chaotic Dalit clan in the first decades of independent India, an immigrant success story in 80s America, and a dystopian nightmare of the post-Trump future. Welcome to Between the Covers, Wahani Vara. Thank you so much for having me, David. So before we talk about your novel, I just had to mention that as I put together the introduction, the one that I just read, and came across the name of the collective you are a part of to mentor writers of color, Periplus, that the name popped up for me a couple of other places as I was researching. One of them was an Oklahoma newspaper that was writing about how when you were 12, that you lasted longer than any Oklahoma speller in the history of the National Spelling Bee, finishing third in the nation, and that it was this word that bested you. So sure, surely that's not a coincidence. Oh, total coincidence, David. Are you, <laughs> oh my God. Um, I've listened to your show for a really long time. And so I know how well researched it is. And um, I love that you are the first interviewer I've ever spoken to who's, um, who's made that connection. I, I love the word paraplus and also have a complicated relationship with it. And when I was in college, my friend, Tony Tula Tamudi, the, the writer, I was like telling him about being in the spelling bee and about how this was the word I lost on. And I told him, I don't remember this, but apparently I told him that if I ever like started a company or something, like I was going to call it Paraplus um, as a way to like reclaim that name. And he remembered that. And when um, along with friends, I started this mentorship collective, I wrote to Tony, who is really good with names. Like he's the person I go to, like all of us in our friend group go to, to like name our novels. Um, and was like, okay, I'm, I have a new thing along with friends. We have this new thing, this collective to mentor writers. Like, what should we call it? And he was like, oh, obviously Paraplus. Like, that's what you said you were going to call, you know, whatever you started. And so, um, yeah, I not a that. coincidence. And what does it mean? Um, so it has to do with, it's like a document having to do with um, circumnavigating coastlines. Um, oh. So it's like a like a naval document. Um, so it's totally apt, right? For this, um, for this collective mentoring, mentoring writers of color, like immigrant writers. So three words that you succeeded at, pertinacious, odontoloxia, and achistics when you were 12. Do you remember the, the oh. meaning of any of those? Oh my God. Um, I don't remember the meaning. Um, the meanings, I do think I remember the, the spellings, spelling. which is, yeah, yeah which is That's sad. Amazing. Well, in your essay for Harper's on spelling bees called Bee Brained, you asked one young contestant what her favorite word was. And she said, Newman ultramicroscopic silicovolcanoconiosis, which was, is the longest word in the dictionary. And it was a word that I was obsessed with uh, when our teacher wrote it on the chalkboard. And I repeated it all the time at any opportunity because after Mount St. Helens erupted, the ash carried all the way to Colorado where I was a bored little league player exiled the left field um, where I could do the least harm to my team. 
and it rained ash on our uniforms um, from Washington State and Colorado, which made the word really more magical. But I'm curious about the origin story about your interest in technology. Does it relate at all to this deep engagement with spelling where your mom is recording herself saying words and, and their meanings for you to play when she isn't at home? Does it have some narrative to it at all? Or was it more random? Uh, you were assigned to the technology beat and you simply took to it. That's such an interesting question. I hadn't thought about the relationship between language and spelling. I love that story, by the way. That's so great and moving and sad. And like, you know, um, there's definitely a relationship between my interest in language and like how words work and the fact that I became a writer, for sure. Like, I'm always surprised that more spelling bee kids don't end up being writers. Like, a lot of them end up um, in totally unrelated fields, uh, like engineering or medicine. So there's that connection. But for me, um, the it, it, it feels, in retrospect, it feels a little random that I ended up first writing about technology and then through that being interested in technology. I, I went to undergrad at Stanford. I graduated in 2004. And as you said, like that was the year that Facebook was founded. And not only that, I had been an undergrad at Stanford, which was one of the first schools where they launched. Um, and so all these companies like Facebook and YouTube were very much like in, in the zeitgeist when I was finishing college. But then I happened to get a job. I interned at the Wall Street Journal in Paris um, through that Daniel Pearl Memorial internship um, before I graduated. And then after I graduated, I had applied for jobs and like didn't get any full-time jobs, but I got another internship at the Wall Street Journal. And that was in the San Francisco Bureau only because like that was the nearby bureau. That's the one that made sense. And then by virtue of being in the San Francisco bureau, that that was the Wall Street Journal's tech bureau. And so I ended up covering tech. And also because I was the youngest person in the office, I ended up being the person who was writing about like these emerging technologies. Well, what's so interesting about your your debut novel is that it's historical fiction set in 1950s India, and it is near future science fiction set in the Puget Sound near Seattle. And it is also the story of the immigration of our main protagonist from the former to the latter. So it's an immigration geographically, but also it feels also like an immigration between historical fiction and, and near future science fiction. Mm -hmm. But but even though we are following the rise and fall of this Dalit immigrant turned tech giant, Rao has already fallen when the book opens, and Rao isn't telling us the story, but rather his daughter, Athena, is. And you've talked about how for many years of the 13 years that this book was in progress, you didn't know who the voice was telling the story. And I'm really enamored with your ultimate solution, not just because you're a tech reporter and because of these tech-assisted, self-revealing, emotionally resonant nonfiction pieces you've, you've written, The Ghost for the Believer and also My Decade in Google Searches for the New York Times, but because your solution in fiction and narrative around both who is telling the story and how the story is told is a tech-assisted point-of-view solution or a tech-assisted hack into narrative structure and storytelling tropes. So I was hoping we could start there with um, your solution to how to tell the story, which is an unusual solution, I think. 
Yeah, so I knew that I was writing a novel in which a child is born into this Dalit family working, living and working on a coconut grove in the south of India in like the 40s or 50s, like in my original conception of it um, after India's independence. And I knew that this character was going to grow up and move to the U.S. and become a founder of a tech company in like the 70s or so. So those were two of the things I knew. And my dad grew up on a coconut grove like this in the south of India in the 1950s. Um, and I had studied tech companies founded in the 1970s in the U.S. from having written about them at the Wall Street Journal. But I had no direct experience of it myself, right? Um, you know, like as a as a woman born in Canada, raised there and in the U.S., um, you know, Dalit myself through my dad, but not having had any direct experience with the kind of caste oppression that people growing up in India in the 50s and 60s and 70s had. Um, I felt like those experiences that I wanted to write about felt very distant to me. And at the time, my husband and I were watching the Battlestar Galactica remake from the 2000s. And for those of you who don't, the listeners who don't know the show, um, there are these characters in the show called Cylons that are sort of like essentially androids, I guess, um, who are very humanoid androids, but, but they can read human consciousness with their minds and like they can access other humans, they can access humans consciousness. And I was like, oh, well, if I could just use something like that, if this, the teller of this story of King Rao could have that kind of capability, it would solve this writing problem I have. Like I could access everything there is to know about King Rao without having to pretend as an author to like that I'm trying to, that I'm embodying King Rao's himself, right? Like in, in, in the first person or a close third person. And so there was this writing problem that was solved by the technology. And then it occurred to me at some point that it made sense for this technology to have been invented by King Rao. And at first, that's all I knew. Like, I was like, there's some technology that's allowing this story to be told. And I was recently looking back at like the earliest drafts of the book. In the very first draft, I think it was not clear at all who was telling the story. Um, and then eventually I hit upon the idea that this was like a software program. And so in the, in the early versions of the book, like there's like this computer voice telling the story, you know, that like lives inside a machine and people would read it and be like, wait, so, so does this, like, who is this voice? Like, does this voice have a gender? Does this voice have like their own identity? Are we meant to think of this voice as like having consciousness or sentience themselves? And uh, initially I kept being like, oh, you don't get it. Like, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, this is like, you just need to go with it. But so many people were so confused by like this version of the voice. And over time, I just realized that I needed to do more to figure out who this voice was. And so later the voice became a kind of android, more like a Cylon that King had like built in his, you know, um, in his workshop. And so it still wasn't, the voice still wasn't human. It was still this invention. Um, and then people would read it and be like, well, but the voice sounds pretty human. It doesn't actually sound like some kind of robot. Um, and so that like it evolved and evolved and evolved over, over time. It was something that took me a really long time to figure out. And then eventually I realized like, oh, this is actually just King Rao's daughter telling the story. Yeah. Well, if we were to go to the beginning of the problem as a writer, um, you want to tell the story about King Rao from a point of view that somehow has access to some of his thoughts that someone outside of him normally wouldn't have. So that's that's where the tech 
solution comes in. But why didn't you want to tell the story from King Rao's perspective, which would have seemed like, at least initially, maybe that would have given you the the, the answer to um, having access to his thoughts? So I felt, I mean, there are actually two, two answers to that question. One is that Again, because I myself had not had personal experience with all these things that I wanted to write about that King lives through and has in the 50s and 60s and 70s, I felt that I couldn't like credibly and authentically write about that, right? Mm -hmm. So there's like in this, you know, own voices movement or whatever you want to call it in literature, this is there's this idea that, um, well, there's a spectrum, right? Like some people believe that you shouldn't write about a perspective that you don't share, right? If you're a white man, you shouldn't write from the perspective of a black woman. And then others might say, well, of course you can, but you need to do it right. You know, like you need to get it right and be authentic and be accurate. And I felt, I, I think I tend to be more in the latter camp, but I felt that I couldn't do it. Like I felt that I wasn't going to be able to accurately and authentically be King Rao, embody King Rao in a first person narrator. Um, but the other thing that I just learned that I'd forgotten is I was I was looking back through these old papers and I found this paper that I wrote in grad school, like this little, you know, 10 page paper or something about um, like first person omniscience, like the idea that you could have a first person narrator who knew everything, who knows everything. Um, and I had thought that like, I had just like come up with it, that for the book, you know, um, this idea of this like technologically adept narrator, this technologically connected narrator who can connect, connect to the internet with her mind, can connect to this other character king with her mind and therefore be in some ways omniscient while also telling the story in the first person. Um, but I found this paper where I'm talking about Moby Dick and I'm talking about um, Juno Diaz's book, um, the, the brief, I'm gonna get the name wrong, the brief and wondrous life of Oscar Wow, right? And realizing that like those also are books that employ, um, so in the paper I write about like how these books employ an omniscient first person narrator and it's so fascinating. And so I was gonna try to do something like that. And so I had forgotten about like these influences for me, um, but I think like I was solving a writing problem. And then at the same time, like I think there was just something fascinating to me too about the idea that you could have like that intimacy of a first person narrator telling the story but then somehow also have the first person narrator know everything. Yeah. It also can't be a coincidence that you name her, the daughter, Athena, who in mythology was born motherless right out of her father's forehead. Because really the person telling the story, as you've alluded to, is is intended to be an extension of her father like no child has ever been. And is in this sense like no other human who has existed before. Um but she's weirdly, and I think this is why the book really works and it's compelling. She's weirdly someone who takes our our um, virtual social media lives to both extremes, the ones that we all are experiencing. She's able to conjure infinite information at any point, essentially, and yet has literally no direct analog experience with any real human beings other than her father. Um, so she she probably should be banned from spelling bees, I'm guessing, because, <laughs> uh, because of her access. But, um, but it's like this sense of like hyper connection and hyper isolation, which I feel like is a, is a very relatable storyteller in, in our age. Yeah. Um, it was hard. It was hard to write, you know, um, because all of us do exist in the context of the real world, even as we're increasingly pulled into our phones. Um, 
And in early drafts of the book, I think I made a lot of mistakes, you know, like I, like I wrote, I wrote Athena because I knew that she knew everything, right? Like she could access whatever she wanted to online. Um, I had this idea of her as like being more knowing in a sort of broader term, a broader definition of that term than she could actually be, you know? Um, and I realized over time that the way to write her had, to, I hope I was successful. Like the way to write her had to be that, like she was basically like, like a child or teenager sitting in front of a computer screen all the time and never talking to a human, you know? So like in one sense, like she has a lot of information access, like she knows a lot of facts, um, but she doesn't know a lot about, she doesn't know anything about like the sort of like palpable way in which, like the, the way the world works on like a sort of like palpable, actual flesh and blood level. Well, the opening lines of the book go, quote, King Rao left this world as the most influential person ever to have lived. He entered it possessing not even a name. If we put aside for now what leads to King Rao's demise, his incredible rise to become the most prominent tech titan in the world was through helming a company called Coconut with his wife, a company whose revolution within personal computing tracks in some ways with Apple, I think. Um, I'd love to spend a couple moments world building together because ultimately he doesn't just invent technology. He also revolutionizes the way we organize ourselves in the sociopolitical sphere as, as humans and as citizens. And because this near future is different in some very significant ways from ours, at least still for a moment, um, talk to us about shareholder government, what it is, uh, how it functions, why it's created, and, and maybe the rhetoric around why it's a good thing according to the people creating it. Yes. So shareholder government emerges from a moment in history that I think is like not too dissimilar from the moment in history that we're in right now, where institutions, national, international institutions are breaking down. Confidence in government is breaking, public confidence in government is breaking down. And at the same time, the wealth of a small handful of individuals and companies is rising. The, the power, the sort of political and social power of these companies and individuals is rising. In the book, what emerges from that is a sort of breakdown essentially in the world order in which corporations end up filling a void. So, you know, a friend was telling me the other day about, um, you know, reading about how Amazon is going to send employees to get abortions if they need to, to get an abortion across state lines because their state has banned abortion, right? Um, and when we read news like that, like, I think we're of two minds. A lot of us are of two minds. It's like, on the one hand, like, isn't it kind of dystopian that a corporation is filling this need? Like, this should be something that's fulfilled by governments. And then on the other hand, like, hooray for good thing Amazon exists though. Like maybe I should go get a job at Amazon. Like that's a really great benefit to have. I'm glad they're being forward thinking about this and progressive in their approach, right? Um, and so in the book, um, the book sort of like takes that notion, I think, further um, by saying, well, what if companies were to like really come together and say, you know what, there's been this breakdown 
don't worry, we've got it under, under control. Like we're gonna start by providing some infrastructure where infrastructure has broken down. And then, oh, oops, you know, it looks like education, education systems in some countries are having trouble. Let's just, we're gonna go in and like, and help with that too. Um, and then eventually in, in, in the book, eventually there's a sort of like gradual, but also somehow sudden, you know, transition where eventually the world is run by these corporations and um, society is, is okay with it. And this, this system is, of government is called shareholder government. So instead of having like nation states, um, there's a global system and everybody, every citizen becomes a shareholder in the system of government, which does mean that you hold shares like literal, you know, fi financial shares in this economy, but the, the size of your holdings is sort of predetermined by how wealthy you were in the previous world yeah. order, right? Um, and so all kinds of other things happen. Like instead of being paid in currency, you're paid in something called social capital, which um, is an evolution of, of money, right? So it's like, it's a bit like money as we think about it now, but it's the amount that you have is also influenced by, for example, like whether you've committed crimes or whether you say mean things about corporations on your social media. Um, and the size, the, the amount of social capital you hold is a little bit mysterious even to yourself because all of these kinds of decisions are determined um, by an algorithm that takes in all these inputs and is meant to sort of like make more sophisticated, informed decisions um, than we ourselves can make. And so you know, I might not know why I have the social capital I have or why it's suddenly gone up or suddenly gone down because it all happens sort of behind the scenes with the aid of this algorithm. Um, the logic behind this is sort of like the the, the rhetoric um, about why this is a good thing has to do with this, you know, this previous breakdown of national governments. And so, um, so I think like the rhetorical question people like King Rao who created the system of government would pose is like, well, you know, this is certainly better than the alternative, right? Like, remember where we were, you know, a decade ago when everything was falling apart? You don't want to go back to that. Um, also, like, on average, a lot of things are better. Like, on average, people are living longer lives. On average, people are healthier. But that hides, um, it sort of obscures a, a, a sort of more complicated truth, which is that there remains a lot of inequality. In fact, inequality has grown. Um, people have less agency. People have less understanding of how their decisions are influencing actual outcomes for themselves. Um, so yeah, I hope that cover covers it. No, that's lot. great. I want to later talk about the shadow that, that this government casts. But, but first, one of the things that you mentioned on a lot of interviews is uh, the way the real world uh, caught up to your imagined future world during those 13 years, some of which caused you to re-enter and rewrite text. Um, climate change, the way it has tangibly and visibly and steadily accelerated in, in only those 13 years is one thing. Uh, but also you mentioned the, the arrival of Trump. Uh, it, it's easy for me to imagine how for you to write a believable near future climate change by necessity would have to be an actor in it. But but tell us about Trump showing up in, in your world already partially built and how, not that Trump's in your world, but that Trump in the real world shows up and causes you to reevaluate. 
Yeah. Um, around the time that Trump emerged as like an early political figure, like when he was making um, false claims about Barack Obama, and then later when he sort of said he was running for president, but nobody took him seriously. I think this was around 2014, 2015. I wrote this character. I was like, oh, a carrot, somebody like this is going to sort of represent the kind of like the demise of traditional institutions, like the traditional nation state in, in my book. Like this is the kind of figure that needs to emerge. Um, Trump is perfect as a model. And so I wrote this sort of like Trumpian president into my book, like this Trumpian president who is, you know, uh, only exists to serve his own interests, is a businessman, um, has a businessman's mentality about how government should be run. Um, and then Trump was elected president. And I would give, I, that, that Trump-like figure was still in the book and friends would read, and my husband, also a writer, would read the book, would read versions of the book and be like, I don't understand why you have Trump in the book, but it's supposed to be you know, X number of years in the future. Like, why is Trump, who's president now, showing up as if, you know, he just popped up to 15 years from now? And the reason was that when I first wrote the character, obviously, I didn't think Trump was would, would become president. You know, I thought it was a, a far-fetched idea. And so when Trump became president and, and I got this feedback from friends, I realized I totally had to recalibrate and account for the fact, the important fact of Trump and people like him who had started emerging like after I started writing the book, you know, um, like the, the, the thing that I imagine leading to leading to breakdown and the emergence of shareholder government was in my imagination. It was like the Obama administration when I started writing the book, you know, like it was this sort of like technocratic time, I think when um, national nationalism around the world hadn't yet emerged as much as it's, it would later emerge. And so like, Trump happened, similar, you know, Viktor Orban, like all these similar figures started emerging all over the world. And the thing that I thought I was making up started to happen in real time. And so I had to account for that. So I had to make clear in the book that like those things happened in the past. And then I had to imagine a future that took it a step further. You know, I had to imagine like this this president, future president character who is even more outlandish than Trump. Mm -hmm. um, and I had to do that with so many things in the book. Well, one of that was really interesting. One other way that real life caught up to some of your impulses around writing the book is you said that this story of King Rao captivated you, this uh, notion of, of someone coming from humble origins to literally rule the world partially because of uh, you not seeing any Indian tech CEOs and wanting to write into a real absence of Indian tech CEOs. But since then, it, it, there's been sort of a remarkable sea change. I, um, the CEO of Microsoft, of Adobe, of IBM, of Twitter, Google's parent company, Alphabet, are just a few of the Indian-born CEOs of American tech giants now. And I know in your tech journalism over the years, you regularly engage with questions of representation. Um, you have an article on Microsoft's neurodivergent hiring program as one example, and uh, another that profiles the stories of four Howard University computer science students that looks at Silicon Valley's failure to hire black coders. Uh, so you obviously think about these questions in your journalism. 
as well as in your creation of the character of King Rao. So you, you're the origin being writing into an absence of representation. So I was, I was curious if you had thoughts on why seemingly all of a sudden there is this wave of, of Indian tech CEOs in the U S. Yeah, I, I had not anticipated that. Um, you know, you have had Adrian Marie Brown on your show and she talks about like the way in which um, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to bungle in paraphrasing the way she puts it, but like she talks about the way that science fiction can be a space for imagining better futures, right. Or like imagining alternative utopias as well as dystopias. Um, and I think my novel is, is, is not trying to do one or the other. Right. Um, but one way in which I was trying to write into a space that I would like to see, right, um, was in pairing King Rao, who is an Indian American immigrant, and Margie, his his who he will marry as his co-founder, a woman, right, a woman in the 1970s to start this company together. Like it did feel like a subversive move meant to show like, well, what if, what if this could happen, you know? And so I had no idea, even though I'd written about the tech company and tech industry and was following tech companies closely. I could see these Indian Americans certainly in like high level positions. It had not occurred to me that there would be some point in the near future where all of these tech companies would be run by Indian Americans. Um, another thing to note though, is that King Rao, the protagonist in my book is Dalit um, from, from you know the oppressed caste group in Indian society and Hindu society. And none of the existing tech CEOs, Indian American tech CEOs in the US are. Um, and another element of what I meant to do subversively in this novel was to have a Dalit person at the bottom of the the caste hierarchy that the, I should say the, the false caste hierarchy, right? The invented caste hierarchy um, b- become the CEO of a company, not only the CEO of a company, but the most powerful man in the world, right? So that was all intentional. And even as in reality, Indian American people are becoming CEOs of this big company, there still is um, uh, intense caste oppression and discrimination in India and in the US as well within tech companies. Yeah. I want to spend some time with both caste and representation within the book. But to go back to spelling just for one more beat, you ask a similar question in your Harper's Spelling Bee essay. Why are so many of the spelling champions Indian American way beyond their demographic representation. And I looked at this year, for instance, and 10 of the 12 finalists in the National Spelling Bee were South Asian, including the winner, so 83%. And amazingly, 21 of the last 23 champions uh, have been South Asian. And in your article or essay, you you raise this question and you you ponder it yourself and ask other people looking at, at class, for instance, or... Um, how many of the the winners have a highly educated uh, stay-at-home parent. I don't think you mentioned this specifically in that article, but I think of an extension of um, immigration policies that favor certain immigrants or migrants from South Asia over others, and also the immigration situation often arriving not as refugees but as desired professionals. Or as you say, um, not talking about the spelling bee now, but about King Rao's arrival in the U.S., you say, there was a name for people like my father, the skilled and educated Chinese, Japanese, and Indian newcomers, who as a result of President Kennedy's Immigration Act 
were arriving stateside in the 70s on airplanes rather than in bee-kelped boats and windowless vans and settling on the margins of college campuses rather than in the tenements and shantytowns peopled by previous waves of migration. They were quote-unquote model minorities. They were, it was said, outwhiting the whites. Um, that's probably the main place in the book you name this phenomenon outright. But but do you feel like the immortal King Rao is engaging with this in in uh, in a broader sense? It does feel to me like outwhiting the whites is a fair description of King Rao the individual and what he's doing, um, playing by the rules that he encounters and trying to win at them. But I'm curious what you're what you're doing in, in the Immortal King Rao around the model minority notion and around this um, notion of success for uh, South Asian migrant immigrants. Yeah, there's this, um, there's this version of immigrant success that has to do, I think, with buying into and supporting the kind of dominant culture, right? Um, Another thing about Indians is that India was colonized by the British. And as a result of that, a lot of Indians learn English in school, right? Um, so that's another, another element of this for Indians in particular. Um, but I wanted to, I definitely wanted to explore that in the character of King Rao. Um, some people have said to me, some readers have said to me, you know, you had this opportunity with King Rao as a Dalit person rising to become the most, most powerful person in the, in the world you had this opportunity for him to like contend with class and contend with social hierarchies and stratification in like a more thoughtful, better way than somebody else might. And why didn't you? And that was very, it was very intentional that I didn't, you know, um, it was very intentional that of all these people, you know, when you're, when you're reading about King Rao at the beginning, he's surrounded, you're reading about all these different family members and some of them have different political orientations or, or philosophical orientations. King is an ambitious kid and he's a kid who sort of like sees the social structures around him and figures out how he needs to navigate them in order to have individual success, right? Um, so he feel, he, he operates that way within his family and then within India. And then when he moves to the United States, he's operating in that way as well. And the culture in, into which he emerges in the United States is this, you know, white patriarchal, um, you know, uh, heteronormative culture that prizes ca capitalism, right? Capitalistic ways of thinking. Um, there are other characters on that same coconut grove um, who view the world differently, you know, like through a more socialist lens, for example, or a more anarchist lens. And I think it's it's not accidental that like those aren't the characters who end up, you know, quote unquote, succeeding in, right. in India and moving to the US and um, having impressive careers and lives, right? Um, so there's something um, there's something about the fact that King Rao is the character who does that that makes it impossible for him to have a stronger sense of class consciousness because if he did, he probably wouldn't have ended up on this path and, and at the pinnacle of business and political life um, in the U.S. And I think um, I, I don't know if that might sound tangential to your question, but to me that feels like very related to your question um, because. Uh, I think in, in society today, not necessarily, not in the, even in the dystopian world that I've, I've written about in the book, but in society today, um, there is like this stratification among immigrant groups, um, 
where those who are quote unquote successful are the ones who, um, who align with dominant culture and those who aren't are the ones who don't. Well, part of the reason why I wanted to bring this up, the Indian tech CEOs and the, the spelling bee demographics is because it feels like representation within literature seems to be very different. I was looking around to see what the breakdown of representation within publishing was within Asian American literature, if I could find something by country. Um, and I couldn't find anything, but I did find an interesting article that analyzed uh, what scholarly attention is paid to various literatures. And 80% of the Asian American literature to receive substantial critical attention were in order of prominence, Chinese, Korean, and Japanese. And um, Indian, Filipino, and Vietnamese led the the sliver of attention that remains after that 80%. And I reached out to the writer, translator, and, and founder of Desi Books, um, Jenny Bott, to see if she knew of anything that directly looked at literary publication itself. She said she didn't know of anything that did, but she brought up the same analysis of, of scholarly attention and said it was a pretty good proxy for what I was looking for. Um, so this is my long way of wondering and wanting to ask you about representation. If, if we look not at Asian American literature in its broadest strokes, but at Indian American literature, as well as Indian literature translated into English for American or North American readers, I wonder how it breaks out or your sense of how it breaks out with regards to Hindu versus Muslim or with regards to caste. Um, I, I want to spend some time talking about caste in a little bit, but it, as a first step in that direction, as you mentioned, your father's family is Dalit, the people who used to be called untouchables by others. Recently, I came across a tweet by the poet Pragita Sharma that said, quote, I want to think about how to unpack Dalit feminist practices and South Asian women's writing and poetics. I'm invested in unpacking Brahmanical patriarchy. Basically, I want to figure out what intersectional approaches in theory advocate for more expansion in writing and poetics. Um, this just added to my curiosity around your sense, if, if you have a sense of it, of Dalit representation within the sphere of Indian American publishing. Do you publish this book among a cohort of peers or into an absence, into a void? That's such a thoughtful question. And thanks for all that research that you brought into the question too. Um, so there is very little Dalit writing published in the US. Um, there are some, um, some of my favorite English language books um, about contemporary Dalit life are um, by the writers Yashika Dutt. Um, she has a book called Coming Out as Dalit and um, Suraj Yengde, whose book is called Cast Matters. Those um, are both seminal books about Dalit life um, and they talk about Dalit life in the U.S. and and outside of India in the diaspora, but they were they were not they have not been published in the U.S. yet. So there are these books that you can buy online if you can find them, um, but they don't get published here. The activist Tenmori Sundararajan has a memoir coming out this fall, and she is a prominent Dalit American activist who I think 
especially rose to prominence recently because she had she was invited to give a talk at Google about caste and caste oppression and discrimination. And then some um, some Google employees, some Indian American Google employees protested saying that her work is inflammatory and she should not be invited. And then she was disinvited. And this was covered in the Washington Post and elsewhere. It was a big story. She is someone who's really inter- whose work is really interesting to me because she is Indian American like me. She grew up in the U.S. Um, uh, she didn't, not, rather than in India, I mean, and she has this book coming out that is that explores sort of Dalit American life, um, Dalit Indian American life here in the U.S. Um, and sort of proposes a framework to for thinking about it. I mention these books because um, so that people know about them, but also like there are just, there aren't many. Um, another book I'll mention is Ants Among Elephants by the writer Sujatha Gidla, G-I-D-L-A, which was published in the U.S. to a lot of critical acclaim, actually. Um, and that's a book that people who are interested in a U.S. published book about Dalit life in India and the U.S. can read. Anyway, the reason I, I mention all of these by name is so that people know about them, but also, like, I couldn't name 20 more books, you know, like there are just right. very few in the U.S. And I think it's notable that the book that brought the issue to ca- of cast into prominence in the U.S. was the book Cast written by Isabel Wilkerson, who's an American woman, you know, a Black American woman, you know, who has has had her own experience of marginalization and oppression and discrimination in a different context. Um, but it wasn't a book by a Dalit writer, you know, which which I think is notable. So there's a there's a huge absence Um in India, there's been a kind of revival of um, of broad interest in Dalit writing uh, in the same way that there's been this um, this reckoning in the U.S. publishing industry, but it's just now starting, and there's like a it, it's long overdue, and there's a lot to make up for. Well, let's do another round of world building together, because a significant portion of the story takes place in 1950s India inspired temporally and ge- geographically by the real coconut grove your family's your father's family ran when he was growing up which lends its name to the fictional coconut tech company biking around the US um in your spelling bsa again you say that it was a different time to be indian american when you were growing up there was no mindy kaling or aziz ansari or kamala harris or nikki haley you say, when I was growing up, I'd tell kids that I was Indian and they'd assume I meant Native American. Only two Indian Americans had ever wanted scripts and it seemed unimaginable that 20 years later people would consider spelling a characteristically Indian American pursuit. But you've also said that you didn't grow up, and maybe this is related if you weren't growing up among many Indian Americans, but you said you didn't grow up in the U.S. and Canada with much awareness around caste. Um and given that you wanted to not only portray India in the 1950s, but also portray a community of Dalit coconut grove workers, how did you go about building the world that portrays King Rao as a child, especially as you've already mentioned with your anxiety around inhabiting King Rao's position because of what you didn't feel like you, you could do? Um, how did you How did you portray this world in a way that you would feel satisfied with it being authentic, quote unquote, authentic. Uh, what was your research process like and, and what hurdles did you encounter um, in, in trying to paint 1950s India on this coconut grove? 
So I think my journalism background was helpful there. Um, the first thing I did at the very beginning in 2009, 2010 was I was in graduate school at the time. So I had access to the University of Iowa library and um, I checked out a bunch of books about rural society in South India in the 1950s, 60s and 70s. I checked out books about caste written by Dalit scholars. There were a couple of um, oral histories I was able to read. My dad actually sent me this um, almanac almost of like what life was like in the district of India where this coconut grove of my father's and of King Rao's family is supposed to be in the 50s and 60s and 70s. I was able to really like consult that and learn a lot. So that was that was my uh, the, the initial phase of my research. And then in 2010, when I was just starting um, the first draft of the book, I traveled to India and spent time on the coconut grove. It was a place I'd visited a bunch growing up. Um, so I had familiarity with it, but I went and visited like with a research mindset and with the help of my a, a cousin of mine and an uncle, I interviewed all these family members and asked what life was like at that time um, and became very aware of like my own cultural biases coming into the research process itself. Um, I remember one particular interview with an aunt, one of my dad's sisters, um, where I asked what her favorite foods were when she was growing up. And she sort of scoffed at me and was like, favorite foods? Like we didn't, I, I don't, I don't have, I don't have and didn't have any favorite foods. Like we didn't have the luxury of choosing which food we liked. Like we just ate whatever was put in front of us. And I hadn't realized that that question itself like came with its own cultural assumptions, right? Um, and so even like that, the mistakes I made were edu educational or informative for me. Um, and the other thing I did was I interviewed, I interviewed scholars in India. So I interviewed, especially Dalit scholars, especially people with um, with family roots in the same region that my family was from. Um, I went to this local coconut research station and learned about coconuts and took their pamphlet home with me. Um, so I, you know, I approached it as if I were a journalist, like trying to write a story, write an article that would be factual and accurate about this time period um, in, in Indian history. Well, when I, when I know, when I know little about something, in preparing for an interview, I, I really relish the chance to to learn more and do my own research. And and um, there are very various points in this book where I feel like the journalist in you sort of steps to the fore, and I love those moments. And you would sprinkle the 1950s narrative with significant details from Dalit political life, and I suspect I suspect these details would be known to most people in India for one, that the architect of the Indian constitution was a Dalit, uh, Ambedkar. Um, and I became really captivated and even sort of waylaid f through reading about and listening to accounts of all the ideological and strategic battles between Gandhi and Ambedkar. Gandhi insisting that India deal with the British as unified Indians, even though that meant being led by men who were all high caste um, and Ambedkar wanting to represent the Dalits independently. Um, the stories of their battles were, they were just kind of amazing to, to hear retold. And his story, Ambedkar's story alone was incredible that he came from a Dalit clan more favored by the British 
So his father was able to get him into a primary school when 99% of his peers couldn't. And yet he wasn't allowed to sit in chairs. He couldn't drink water from the school. Someone would have to volunteer to pour it into his mouth without touching him. But he nevertheless earns a scholarship to Columbia and New York and then returns as likely the most educated person in the entire province, regardless of caste. And yet he's still treated the same and no one will rent him a room and he eventually has to rent a room under a a false name. And yet he becomes the architect of the Indian constitution. Uh, I just, I mean, before we talk more about caste and, and he's not a huge figure, but he's, he's a figure that uh, pops up here and there briefly in your book. You don't go, go into all of this history that I just recounted, but um, was he a figure that loomed large in your family imaginary growing up? Or is this stuff that you as writing the book were things that you were discovering about your own heritage through the writing process? So as I, as, as you said, um, I didn't grow up with any strong sense of caste, um, caste identity or caste consciousness. Um, my parents both, my mom is not Dalit, but my parents both um, uh, rejected the caste system, um, right? And so I think partly as part of that, since we were, you know, my sister and I were being raised in Canada and the US, um, it wasn't something that got talked a lot about. I think par- partly as part of that rejection, um, when I, it was like, when I was in my twenties that my dad, started talking more about Dr. Ambedkar and about cast and he would like send me books to read. Um, and so it was through that process, I would say, that I became more aware of who Dr. Ambedkar was. Um, and certainly over the course of researching this book, I thought about him more. Um, it was my dad actually who read an earlier draft of the book in which I like mentioned Dr. Ambedkar in passing and said, I think you need to, like, I think he needs to be more in the book. Um, and, it, you know, I, I ha- I've had all these, ever since the book has been published, I still keep thinking about these things that I'd like to put in the book, or I wish I'd, I wish I had decided to put it in the book. And as you were describing um, Dr. Ambedkar's, you know, childhood and, 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 and life and rise, I was thinking, thinking to myself, oh, maybe I should have had, like, a longer section about that. It is, it is such a great story. Um, you know, in 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 all all three of the sort of timelines of the book, I was struggling with balancing um, like providing information and telling the story, right? Um, and so so I had that in mind when when writing about Ambedkar. But one thing that I was doing was thinking about how like the actual characters in the book would be talking about him. So. Like in the 1950s and the 1960s, uh, there would be people in a family like King Rouse who talked about Dr. Ambedkar a lot and considered him a hero. And there would be other people who, you know, were barely aware of him because that aspect, just like African-American history, wasn't well taught uh, in the U.S. until recently and even still now is being rejected in a lot of places. Um, Dalit history was not well taught in India. And so you could go to you could, you know, go to Indian schools from kindergarten to, to the 12th grade and barely know who Dr. Ambedkar was. Mm. So I wanted all of that reality to be reflected in the book. Well, maybe as a connection back to what you were saying before about how someone like King Rao couldn't have had a different political analysis and ended up where he, he was. But Ambedkar sort of serves as another, like, 
humble origins to founder of a nation arc uh, mm-hmm. with someone with that very different political analysis, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I agree with you. That story, his story reminds me of the Rao family in the book in the sense that um, they have to assume Brahmin family names themselves. But I also think about how, unlike Ambedkar's story, Rao's story doesn't center discrimination against his family. One of the reviews in India of, of your book highlighted this aspect of the book when they said, this is not a tale of poor, persecuted Dalit making it rich in a distant land. The Rao's are landowners in a village where, despite the caste hierarchy, many Dalits are well-to-do. One of King Rao's grandfathers runs a school, while the other owns a coconut grove where King is raised. And Karan Mahajan, the author of The Association of Small Bombs, talked about how your portrayal of Dalit life brings complexity to it, avoiding exploitative portrayals of poverty or of seeing them monochromatically through the lens of oppression. I guess I wondered if this was this by design and intent, a, a pushback against a simple caste-based stereotyping of something that is far more contradictory and nuanced in real life? Or was this a happy accident of you simply portraying the real-life community of your father's family, which happened to grow up in this way? Yeah, so it was, I would say it was both. So, so my father's family happened, and I'm putting that in air quotes, right, to grow up this way. Um, but the reason my father's family had the background it did was because of the broader socioeconomic and cultural circumstances in India at the time. So in the 20th century, um, the 20th century was a time in part because of Dr. Ambedkar's influence in which Dalit people were starting to have opportunities for social mobility. So for example, Dalit families were starting to be able to acquire land, like in small numbers and in modest ways after generations of oppression, but land acquisition was starting to be a thing. And so my dad's family and King Rao's family in the book are representative representative of a broader trend that was taking place. And this was true also of access to education. You know, Dalit people were able to get more access to education. Um, An affirmative action system was put into place in India, um, like a more formally than in the United States. So a formal system of affirmative action in which Dalit people had more access than they previously had to universities and to government jobs, for example. So there was all this interesting um, upward mobility that was happening for Dalits in the 20th century. And at the same time, there was a serious backlash to that. you know, in ways that I think are mirrored in the U.S., for example, right, where in the wake of the civil rights movement or in the wake of um, the abolition of slavery, right, there was there was this severe backlash against equal rights and freedom in this country as well. And so I wanted to show all of that. Like, I wanted to show what the upward mobility looked like. I wanted to show the ways in which um, oppression and discrimination does continue, you know, so there are scenes in the book um, in which King and his friends learn about violence against Dalit people, Dalit children um, in a nearby town. Uh, Their discrimination continues. Um, 
in in subtle forms, sort of like in in the way that local politics work. And so I wanted to show that, you know, when when King goes to university, he's constantly, um, you know, people are constantly whispering or he's hearing whispers in his head, right, about having gotten there only because of the affirmative action system. So I think all that nuance exists. I, I would argue that like this isn't in the same way that it's not just a portrayal of oppression and poverty. It's also not just a portrayal of upward mobility because that would be false as well. So I was trying to show both. Well, could we hear a section of the book? So I'm going to read from this section in which King is growing up in his hometown town in India. And this is a time of a lot of change in his village and more broadly. And um, I think the only thing that you need to know as I introduce this is that the character called Apaya, who I'm about to mention, is both King's maternal grandfather and uh, his teacher at school. The years passed. The change accelerated. It wasn't just a time of change in Kutlapalli. No, what was happening to them was a symptom of a bigger transformation afoot, Apaya told King's class. He explained to his students that India's caste system, while widely believed to be special, was only one manifestation of a social structure that had once been prevalent in pre-modern societies all over the world, one in which citizens were split up into three groups, priests, warriors, and laborers, France's first, second, and third estates were no different from Brahmins, Kshatriyas, and Shudras. Across cultures, the priests who provided education and the warriors who maintained law and order made up the minority class granted land and political authority, while the laborers made up the vast majority of citizens, but held neither property nor power. In Europe, at the end of the Middle Ages, This arrangement began to disintegrate as some workers repositioned themselves as merchant middlemen and earned their way into a better economic position, lodged between the rich and the poor, the bourgeoisie. In the late 18th century, the French crown, racked by war debt, turned to these merchants for funding, and sensing an opening, the merchants demanded more political power. When the crown denied them, they moved to seize it. This was the start of the French Revolution, and a new social order governed by neither priests nor lords, but by a broader class of property owners. In India, a similar progression might have taken place if it weren't for the British East India Company coming along. Great Britain, like France, had been begging merchants for help financing its foreign adventures. And in the early 1600s, the crown had started approving joint stock companies, businesses funded by outside investors who had no management role and could not even be held legally responsible for what the business did. The risk of the foreign trading missions these companies undertook was enormous. No single investor could bear the burden. The investors were nothing without one another. It was the East India Company, one of Europe's very first joint stock companies that exploited the decline of the Mughal empire to lay claim over most of the subcontinent, employing the caste system for its own purposes. It hired Brahmins to collect taxes from Indian families and Shatriyas to fight those who resisted, and thus cementing the role of caste in a society that might well have otherwise dispensed of it. But now, in the absence of the British, the old social order was breaking down. This wasn't just about coconuts. This wasn't just about family. What they were going through now was part of the eternal struggle between oppressor and oppressed, trampler and trampled. Here, a new chapter was belatedly opening. 
a Maoist politics was rising. In the state of West Bengal, disenfranchised tea plantation workers, Dalit adjacent tribals, had seized land from their landlords and given it over to the landless. The Naxalbari movement, named after the village in which it took place, was crushed within months. But news had already spread southward about the brief and glorious coup perpetrated by those peasants of West Bengal. King was 15. He and everyone else in Kutthapalli heard about all the discord secondhand. Many of the village's residents were Dalits who, thanks to Grandfather Rao's loans back in the day, had only recently become landowners. Now the village's longtime landlords were on guard, believing Dalits to be especially susceptible to the new strain of revolutionary thought. The thing to do was to be aware of little signs of uprising, as the legacy landlord saw it. Already some villages had reverted to the old rules to guard against uppityness. Dalits couldn't sit in a cart or boat already occupied by a higher caste person, graze their buffalo on common land, set foot in temples, or draw water from the common village well. The new village council president told Chinna, who had told Apaya, that Apaya would do well to stop inciting his students with revolutionary talk. Apaya protested, I'm only teaching them the truth. Chinna was unsympathetic. Well, don't, he said. But Apaya, provoked, began doing exactly what they had accused him of doing all along. He converted to Buddhism. He taught his students to memorize the poem by Jeshuva, the first modern Dalit poet writing in Telugu, about a starving Dalit cobbler barred from entering God's temple to seek solace, who sees that a bat has flown into his home. The cobbler begins talking to the creature, lamenting that it can fly into the temple whenever it wants, while he, human though he is, cannot. When you hang from the ceiling in the temple, you are close to God's ears. Gentle bat, tell my woes to God when the priest is not around. Come back and tell me, please, what the God of gods has said. I have no one else to turn to for help or support. One afternoon, a truck came to Apaya's school carrying a coffin-sized crate. And as the children gathered around to watch, Apaya opened the box to unveil a life-size statue of the great Dalit reformer, B.R. Ambedkar. Ambedkar's face was pink and his lips bright red. He wore a bright blue suit stretched over a round belly, decorated at the throat with a red tie. On the tip of his nose sat a pair of large round glasses. He held a copy of the Indian constitution, which the real Ambedkar had written, tucked under his left arm. His mouth hung slightly agape, his white teeth gapless. Apaya put a hand to the statue's forehead and closed his eyes, as if communing with his hero. Then, with the help of the biggest boys in the class, he mounted the statue on a pedestal in front of the school, easily visible to anyone passing through the center of the village. We've been listening to Wahani Bara reading from her debut novel, The Immortal King Rao. Since I mentioned that Indian reviewer, I, I'm wondering about the Indian reception of the book. You have this interesting vantage point with the book coming out both in, in the U.S. and India at the same time. Do you, do you feel like the reception has differed in each place, or has the book been framed differently, or the questions posed to you, have they been different in ways that have, have been notable? An aspect of the Indian reception that I found really interesting, honestly, is, is a critical aspect, which is that some of the Indian reviews 
have described aspects of the book as sort of as having a sort of outsider's perspective, not necessarily in the facts that are described, but like in the way that India is presented and the way that the US is presented and the perspective in the book. Um, I think that's a really interesting and valid criticism of any book by like a diasporic writer in general, right? Writing about their homeland, their ancestral homeland. I think it's probably inevitable that that sometimes happens. Um, and the reason I find it interesting is that um, criticism in general is so interesting because the book, like once the book, as a writer, you publish the book, it's out of your hands and it only exists sort of in the imagination of all these many people who read it. And so I feel pretty honored to get to have been reviewed in all these different contexts. And I think when Indian reviewers write this way about books by Indian American authors, I think one thing it reflects in part is the lack of the relative lack of representation of works by Indian authors in the US market and a frustration that all these books by Indian American authors are then inevitably published in India, right? Um, to, to the Indian audience. Um, and I think I think it's a very valid and worthy criticism and concern. Like I think, I think there should be more literature from India, especially given that so much Indian literature is in the English language. You wouldn't have to translate it or anything, right? So there's all this great literature, really cutting edge, innovative literature, I think, that's coming out of India that doesn't get published in the US. And so I, I can understand how it could be a source of frustration um, uh, for an Indian reader or an Indian critic to have to deal with this book published uh, by an Indian American author who hasn't ever lived in India in, 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 in India itself. Um, I, while that's one of the most interesting aspects of the criticism to me, I think generally there's been a pretty warm reception of the book. And one thing that's been gratifying given that early concern I had about my ability to write about the coconut grove, for example, is that um, critics seem to feel that those portrayals are accurate and authentic and realistic. So that's oh, nice. That sounds really gratifying. Yeah. So let's leap back into the near future and shareholder government and talk a little bit more about the shadow side of it. Because if a potential reader were to only know that the book were about a Dalit leaving his village in rural India, coming to America, innovating a society changing technology, and then becoming more powerful than anyone on earth, you could easily think that this book were a book selling or celebrating the American dream. Um, but one of the ironies of the book is that shareholder governance reinscribes social inequalities. And this is perhaps partly because of Rao's lack of engagement with these very social questions as an individual. Your epigraph uh, from Thomas Piketty's Capital and Ideology goes, once the choice has been made to organize economic, commercial, and property relations at the transnational level, it seems obvious that the only way to transcend capitalism and ownership society is to work out some way of transcending the nation state. But exactly how can this be done? But this epigraph seems only to be partially true about shareholder governance. Uh, it has transcended the nation state. There is even one global school curriculum translated into 65 languages, for instance. But at least for me, it hasn't transcended 
capitalism by doing so, but rather sort of enshrines it in a way that makes no nation accountable to its violences. Um, I just wondered what your thoughts were on shareholder governance in relationship to this notion of, um, of transcending the nation state as a way to transcend capitalism. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I think that's such a fascinating question that's posed by Piketty. And I think he's someone who is interested in how social goals can be met through government, right? So I think um, that's the lens through which he seems to be approaching the question, given the, the broader context for the book, which is for the quote, which is that book, Capital and Ideology, which I found fascinating. Um, it it seems to me, or the, the avenue that I was interested in exploring in the book was not answering this question of like, how society could be made better with government, right? Like how government could be employed as a more effective tool, but rather like how the current breakdown, the breakdown that's sort of described in part by Piketty in that quote um, could be exploited by those who are already powerful and wealthy. Uh, it seems, it's hard for me to imagine a future that's something other than just a more capitalistic future. Um, that's a future that seems relatively likely to me. Um, I think there would have to be major change for that to be avoided. Um, that's not to say that I think I'm describing in the book like the inevitable future, right? Um, but it's certainly like an eventuality that seems very possible to me. Mm. And that's because historically, just over time, what has kept happening over and over is an entrenchment of wealth, an entrenchment of power. There have definitely been forces working against that, you know, um, and also history is made up of change, right? So a trend could start moving in another direction, but capitalism is a really powerful force and it's a force, like it's an institution that we built and then, right, we've like removed, we've built this institution that dilutes individual agency. Um, and so it's an institution that almost, um, like I hate to, to like that, that our agency still exists, right? It just makes us feel that it feels that feel that we're not responsible. And so it makes it really easy for this institution for capitalism, capitalism to keep growing, to become, become more powerful. I kind of want to link this back to technology, um, the way the shareholder system works. Ultimately, it reminds me of a conversation I had with Tija Jen, who, like you, also engages with um, artificial intelligence and technology in her writing. Um, she was engaging with the preponderance of white coders in one of her, her projects and, and wondering how, um, what effects that was having behind the scenes, uh, the almost invisibility of that reality um, how that might or might not be affecting her and her peers when they're largely artists of color who were doing collaborative art making that was engaging with artificial intelligence, for instance, but they weren't engaging with um, what's made invisible behind the artificial intelligence, um, which is this inequity of who's coding the intelligence in the first place. 
So this question about engaging with the code and the coder, not just with the result of the code, is something I think about in your book, uh, in your novel, when we talk about the algorithm. Um, because the algorithm, I think because it is not human, has the veneer of objectivity. Uh, it gives a sense of plausible deniability uh, to any bias, um, that when it produces inequities in access, whether those inequities uh, are inequities of free speech or access to material goods, um, in your imagined future, it's easy to say this isn't prejudice, this is just the algorithm. And I wondered if you could just speak into this a little bit, uh, especially because you've you've written about coding also. So, I mean, here we have this way the system can can distance itself from the mechanism, essentially. You know, in the in the tradition of writing about futuristic societies built on technology, I think like sort of early in that tradition, there was a lot of concern about like technology that would grow too powerful and have a life of its, a mind of its own and oppress the people who once oppressed it, right? Like that's that's a familiar trope um, in, in early sci-fi and dystopian writing. Um, and I think there's this emerging over the past, I don't know, decade or more, there's been this sort of emerging understanding in technology itself. And I think in some writing about technology that contends with the fact that technology has in its in the way it's been deployed thus far has basically is basically a tool of capitalism right so it's something that t tends to be built because investors have decided it should be built and put money into hiring programmers and to you know keeping servers running right and the investors put money into it because they want to see their money grow right um and so because of that technology so technology is a tool like any other tool but it's been it's 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 been constructed in such a way that it serves capitalism, it serves capitalist interests, um, business interests. And so I think we are now, like, when we think about technology now, like the more interesting question to ask is not, the, the, the more interesting threat to explore is not whether technology will have a, have a mind of its own and oppress us, but rather to think about the ways in which our own ills and evils are being embedded into technology itself, right? Um, and so that's something that's something that I wanted to show in the book. This algorithm that sort of runs society in in the context of the book is I can't remember if I how explicitly I say this in the book, but the idea behind this was that like like its goal is sort of like efficiency in a capitalistic system, right? Like it's been, the, the, the algorithm has been taught that the outcomes it should pursue are outcomes that favor efficiency, that favor, you know, doing things cheaply and getting um, positive outcomes in a sort of economic sense, right? And so that means that a standardized education curriculum seems like the most favorable approach to education because it's cheap, it's easy, um, you can get it to a lot of people really quickly without concern for like what the new local nuances might be, right, and how things should be taught and who has access. And if there's some, you know, tribe in rural India or Australia or elsewhere where there are only 20 people that speak that language, 
like it's probably not efficient to provide education to those people anyway, because it would be too costly, right? To do it under this system. But like an, an algorithm would make a decision like that probably. You know, we, we use algorithms like this today, you know, like I read stories all the time. I've written stories about it as well, about the way algorithms make mistake in, make mistakes in policing and education, right? And those have major societal impacts. And so it didn't feel too far-fetched to imagine this algorithm also that's making decisions in this, um, in a similar way, but just in a kind of hypercharged version um, where everything, everything seems good, but it's sort of like hiding these, these, these problems that are, that don't have anything to do with like the algorithm becoming too powerful and wanting to take over the world, but rather just have to do with like the ways in which we as humans are crappy and putting our crappiness into the algorithm. Yeah. And hearing you talk reminds me of something that Teju Cole said too about the writer photographer Teju Cole, who who said that uh, the light meter in cameras is is um, calibrated towards white skin, and the questions we now have around photography and how things are framed, we always are thinking of the photograph, the result, the person who's looking through the camera, and how they're choosing to compose the image. But what happens if the very thing that we see with is already before we've pointed it at anything has has a bias embedded in it, which this might seem like a stretch, but this does remind me of some of the things that uh, I listened to on my long jogs of Ambedkar and Gandhi in their battles with each other. And I wanted to share one, one aspect of that around this question around addressing the structure. Um, because one of the podcasts suggested that Ambedkar said that a new India free of injustice had to get rid of caste altogether. And that Gandhi, on the other hand, had more of an elitist view of harmony based on individual duty. That after the British were removed, the Hindus and Muslims, Brahmins and Dalits would learn to get along through duty and sacrifice with the individual as the moral agent um, through praxis that if the Brahmins, through their sense of duty, would do service to the Dalit, they would break down the divisions of labor, was the notion, according to the show I was listening to. But because Gandhi invoked, as the foundation of this argument, Ram Raja, the utopian notion of good governance with Lord Ram as its best example, he ultimately centers Hinduism, and the purpose and structure caste would bring to this future society in a good way, one that would transform from each person themselves transforming themselves. I don't have a deep grasp of this. This is probably obvious, and I don't know if I'm being fair to Gandhi's position, but this p podcast went so far as to say people today who want a Hindu majoritarian country centered on Hindu ideology could actually look back to Gandhi if they wanted to in this regard. And it wondered in this show if, if really Ambedkar's face should be held up at the protests against the India of Modi and his vision for India instead of Gandhi's. And I was recently in France. I just got back and I had lunch with a past guest of mine while I was there, the French-Indian poet Karthika Nair. And I ran... I ran this by her just like, is this, is this what I'm listening to? Like, does this seem like a, a marginal position or, uh, and, and she felt like 
it rang true from her perspective about Gandhi. But when I think of the algorithm as a, a stand-in and fall guy for the problems of society, somehow I also obliquely think of this debate between getting rid of the structure entirely and with it the algorithm versus everyone transforming themselves to transform the society but not really ultimately talking about the thing that's embedded in it or or maybe even defending the thing embedded embedded in it but i guess i wondered if this sparks anything for you this isn't really a question but it's just material that i've been thinking over especially and particularly i think because of um the way gandhi is framed in the united states yes no i'm so happy that you're raising this point and bringing it up in this way, because it was something that I was thinking about a lot when writing the book. Um, I've noticed that some people in describing the book have described it as like three stories put together. Right. Um, And it is in a sense, but also like this, what I intended it for it, for it to also do was talk about the direct line between um, society in the 1950s and society in the 1970s and the early 2000s and today and what could come out of all of that because there is a really direct line and one of one of the direct lines one of the one of the ways in which this continuity has been in place is through is through like you could call it human innovation or um, the the use of human tools, um, the use of human systems, and caste is one of those systems. You know, like we think of caste. I think many I shouldn't say we. Many people think of caste as this like, you know, the way we think about a lot of things that have to do with religion as this thing that sort of came down from the gods. You know, before we were even here, right? Like this thing that's sort of embedded in the in the superstructure of existence um, that sort of like that we just popped into. But caste is a human invention, right? Just like anything, just like any aspect of religion, it's a human invention in the same way that the algorithm in my novel or algorithms in general are human inventions. So I was really conscious of that in writing the book and I'm, I'm really glad you're talking about it. I think it's very, it's a very apt metaphor to say that like human, human biases human, even like human evil is embedded into the caste system, a human desire for control, a human desire for to oppress others, right, is is built into the caste system in the same way that those human desires and human tendencies are built into the algorithm that I invented for the sake of the book, right? Um, and I think one of the questions of the book is, has to do with the power that these tools have once we create them, you know, um, it's, it's, it's complicated and really fascinating to me. Well, I also think of the algorithm when I, when I think of Western economic notions of the quote unquote free market and the invisible hand of the free market, uh, which seem to rely on this similar distancing from accountability as if this is all magically happening Yes. meaningfully. Uh, and Justin Taylor puts it well in the New York Times about your book. He says, so-called free markets are always built on acts of dispossession and fueled by institutionalized exploitation. All of this is then narrativized into a fairy tale about invisible hands and quote-unquote natural hierarchies. 
to make these acts of rapacity and despoliation seem sourceless and inevitable so that nobody in particular can be held responsible for their perpetration and perpetuation. So too with the Indian caste system, the British Empire, the American Empire, the shareholder government, and the ghoulish pursuit of immortality itself. So in that spirit of Justin's review, which I really enjoyed, one last time I'd like to do a little bit of world building, uh, as we haven't talked about one large part of the book, and that is the society of people who have opted out of shareholder government, the exes who live in the blank lands. So tell us about them. Why have they opted out? What is different about living in the blank lands? And why are they called that? Um, yeah. Okay. So I really wanted in this book, I mean, it was like an intellectual desire and also something that came out of the needs of the book itself in a more organic way to show what dissent and civil disobedience might look like in a world like the one that I've created here in the book. Um, it's a world in which society discourages, um, does not celebrate um, dissent, right? Um, or sort of behavior that is not normative. But people, you know, people have always existed who have pushed against the grain and wanted to protest. Um, so in the, in the novel, the exes are dissidents who have opted out of engaging with any of what shareholder government has built. So they don't, um, they don't use the, the social media. They don't actively use the social media that shareholder, shareholder government essentially requires everyone to use. Um, uh, even when they protest, they don't spread word of their protests on social media because that would be using the tool created by by the oppressor, right? Shareholder government. So they start that way and they're operating, they're protesting within shareholder government and they're seeing their social capital decline and they're getting thrown in jail and they're finding it difficult to, to, sustain, um, to, to, to sustain this way of existence. And then to avoid giving any spoilers, I'll just say that some dramatic events take place and things come to a head and there's a meeting between shareholder government and representatives of this group, which call themselves the exes. And they kind of broker this deal in which the exes feel like they're getting what they want. They get these islands off the coasts of continental society where they get to live um, on their own and not be part of shareholder government. They, they can't have access to shareholder government services, but they also don't have to do all the things that you need to do to be part of shareholder government. And so they're allowed to build this alternate society of their own on these islands. And people do that. But over time, it becomes clear that the deal that they've gotten isn't entirely beneficial for them. They are living on these islands, but because they're exiled to these islands and they don't use technology or social media to, to spread their message, what the shareholder government has effectively done um, and on, on purpose, right, this wasn't an accident, is sort of exile all signs of dissent from, from being in public view on shareholder land. They've also exiled, allowed these people to self-exile to these islands that are going to be the first to go when climate change gets worse and worse and coastlines rise. So it's a complicated existence. But there's a lot that I admire about the exes um, after their self-exile. They do effectively build some, build a sort of alternate model for governance. You know, they have, they have their own 
um, essentially unions that protect workers and provide services. Everybody pitches in in, um, in helping one another. It's, I would say it's less a socialist model than an anarchist model, but like maybe an anarchist model influenced by socialism if you had to choose a label for it. Um, the islands are trading with one another. Um, they are accepting donations, contributions from sympathetic people on the mainland. And you can see this sort of like burgeoning idea of, what, of, of an alternate model, but the question the book um, eventually raises is like, what then happens, right? Once you've built this alternate model, what do you do with an alternate model that is remains marginalized? Um, and can that model become the model of the future? Um, and that's some of what I wanted to wanted to grapple with. Yeah, I don't know if this is a stretch, but I was thinking also something from the Justin Taylor quote about despoliation and how it's made seem made to seem sourceless and inevitable is that all the technologies we are developing and that are put forth are, are sort of put forth aesthetically and, and um, aesthetically primarily as wireless and clean. They, they look sleek and white or shiny silver and they require less and less smaller and smaller hardware but they're really hiding all the wires and the costs and the despoliation. They're still there. There are still cables along the bottom of the ocean. We are sinking servers into natural bodies of water to cool them off. Google's signing non-disclosure agreements with local municipalities to buy public water and privatize it. Um, child labor is mining the trace minerals. Wage slavery is building this, the phones. And the mining of these trace minerals is on the short list that in the top five or six reasons we've been at an elevated pandemic risk for the past two decades. Um, the electricity to run the server farms significantly contributes to global warming. There are real substantive material costs beyond the psychological ones of all the social media technology that's created under this illusion of wirelessness it feels like it's sold to us as this ethereal elegance. And it feels like, I don't know if it's a stretch to connect it to these communities, but these communities are, are returning to their bodies, to the analog world of like, how are we beholden to wherever we are and to the people who are, who are there with us? Mm -hmm. I just wondered if that felt like a stretch to you to, to make a connection between something as disembodied as an algorithm and, and maybe the impulse that these people who have heard trying to pull the plug. When I first started writing about the exes, I didn't know what was going to happen with them. You know, I didn't know whether they would successfully pull off some kind of revolution or whether, you know, they would take over the global government or whether they would, you know, run themselves into extinction and not be able to survive. Like I had no idea. I just sort of created this, these characters. They ended up on these islands and the thing that happened for me in the writing is that I realized, and I think this is where I think this connects with what you're, you were posing earlier. I realized that even if these individual human beings have exiled themselves to these physical islands that are outside of, um, of mainstream society, like the, the globe is still a system, whether we want to call it that or not. Right. Like, they, they still belong to this broader ecosystem. And 
if it's the case that their exile has made protests um, less visible, dissent less common in mainstream society, if it's the case that the fact that they've decided not to use social media means that their message isn't being heard, like, can it be argued that they're actually contributing to the problem, right? Can it be argued that their, that their self-exile makes them feel good about themselves, but is, is actually worsening, um, worsening the problem? I'm, I'm not sure like how I would answer those questions, but I think they engage with, with some of what you're asking. Yeah, I do too. I know you read a lot of anarchist philosophy. You read the writings of Emma Goldman as part of Creating the World. And anarchism has been a lot on my mind because of the Ursula Le Guin series I'm doing, um, as she's painted several anarchist uh, future worlds in her in her writing. Um, and in several of the Crafting with Ursula episodes lately have focused on this aspect of her writing. But I was also surprised to see you connecting Taoism and anarchism in some of your conversations, because this is a connection she makes over and over again, or she made over and over again, over a half century, which makes me wonder if you're also doing that, if maybe this it's part of uh, a lot of people making this connection or whether it's just a coincidence, but what do you, what do you see that brings the two together? And in your mind, the, the Taoist and the anarchist um, worldviews. Yeah. Um, so it's funny, I, I didn't know about Ursula Le Guin's interest in Taoism until after I wrote the book. It might've even been through listening to your podcast, honestly, David, that I learned about that connection. And so I guess, I mean, it's either possible that I knew about that, collect, that connection in her work in some, you know, like subconscious way and it ended up here. As best as, as I can remember, I first encountered this Taoist um, text the Zhuangzi in college or maybe high school, you know, through like one of these survey courses on, on, um, on philosophy and how various philosophies developed. And I remember loving the book then, and I re-encountered it through Jenny O'Dell's book called How to Do Nothing, um, published by Melville House several, you know, a couple to several years ago, in which she draws on Taoism to talk about the sort of like, uh, to, to sort of present a kind of anti-productivity kind of um, f- philosophy that, you know, she lives in the Bay Area. She's writing out of the Bay Area in Silicon Valley. And in this book, How to Do Nothing, she's talking about, she's sort of like making the case for doing nothing essentially, um, but a sort of philosophically based case for that. So Taoism comes into it. And if I'm remembering correctly, that was when I re-encountered Taoism and reread that text, the Zhuangzi, um, just out of personal interest, but I happened to be writing this novel at the same time and started to think about the ways in which these ideas in Taoism, um, which are sort of proto-anarchist ideas, connect to some of what was happening in my novel already. And the reason I call Taoist ideas proto-anarchist is that in Taoism, these ideas emerge um, of these sort of anti-institutional ideas, these ideas that like the creation of a tool isn't inherently a good thing, making something easier on yourself or easier on society through use of the tool isn't necessarily something we should be aiming for. Creating an institution or being a a leader of government is not necessarily something that one should aspire to. In fact, maybe 
the sort of a, a more natural order of things in which we haven't um, employed tools and created these sort of institutional superstructures is, is a preferable way of being. And I had already been reading in anarchism, you know, in, in writing these characters who I think earlier I had a version of them who were socialist. Um, and then I was like, no, they actually need to be anarchists. So I'd been reading in that tradition and was seeing a lot of resonance between Taoism, which I had sort of just picked up again after this long gap and these anarchist ideas. Um, and that book, the Zhuangzi, is just really, really beautiful and, and, and wise. And then at the same time, kind of sly and funny. It's just a book that I, that I love and I had forgotten about loving. Well, your second epigraph is from him. The yeah. superior man oversees all under heaven. There is no better policy than non-action. And I'm going to follow that with another quote from Justin Taylor's review that I thought was great. How to mediate between the competing interests of autonomy and collectivity, the desire for self-sovereignty and the reality of interdependence is the major question this novel poses over and over at familial, societal, and global scale. When the Rao clan votes to decollectivize the coconut farm, that they call the garden, the decision is framed in terms of choice and opportunity, but the establishment of job tiers and wage brackets destroys the social fabric of garden life. With every nuclear family on the property buying their own groceries, it's impossible to cook and eat together. And of course, the work that the women do, cooking, cleaning, childcare, is not compensated at all. Without that work, the men can't hold their wage jobs. But if women were to be salaried in proportion to the actual value of their labor, it would break the bank. I'd love to take this as an entryway into a discussion of gender in the book, a discussion of the great man narrative, as most of these tech moguls surely see themselves within, King Rao included. But how the women in this book undercut this narrative. Obviously, first and foremost, our narrator, Athena, who is meant and even designed to be an extension of King Rao's reach, but who's clearly her own person. But also the, the leaders in the blank lands, King Rao's wife, they all undercut this narrative that um, in its broadest sense is a hero narrative, I think. Uh, you, you've talked about this book being about the past, present, and future of global capitalism, but is this also a book about, if not the tra trajectory of global feminisms, various iterations of, of global feminisms? Yes, absolutely. In just as a human, I'm really fascinated by the way in which over time, um, in various historical contexts and like geographical and social and religious and cultural contexts, women and girls find ways to exert power and exert agency like within significant constraints. Like I think that's sometimes depicted um, as like as a state of victimhood, um, but I was really interested in like showing where the power is in, in, in that. And sometimes it's effective and sometimes it's not, you know, the, the novel, this isn't a spoiler because it's the beginning of the book, but the novel opens with King Rao's mother, you know, like the first, the first active agency that you see her engaging in is stealing a bar of soap that she thinks is really lovely. Right. Um, 
And it's in some ways an event that ultimately leads to her death, right? Because that leads to one thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. And by the end of the first chapter, she's dead. But then there are all these other characters like King Rao's wife, Margie, who, you know, hasn't studied computer science, has has a bit of an arts education, but not much of one, has always been disregarded because she sort of speaks in up talk and, um, you know, wears a sprightly ponytail and and has a long winded, you know, traditionally feminine way of talking. Right. Um, uh, She plays a major role in the establishment of this company with King. And it can even be argued, I think, very credibly argued that it's really her idea that she sort of puts into King's mind um, so that he feels like it's his idea and she attaches herself to it um, so that she's able to start this company, which she she wants to do, but wouldn't have been able to do in the absence of attaching the idea to King. Um, and so there are all these wily things, I think, that women in the book do over and over um, that, um, that the men in the book tend not to notice, right, or tend to disregard. But the women in the novel sort of like see it clearly in one another. So Margie, for example, sees... Um, understands something of King's. So King is raised by his aunt who then becomes his mother after his birth mother dies. So I'm going to refer to her here as his mom, but, but King's wife, Margie has grown up in very different circumstances from King's mother, Sita, but sort of like sees in Sita, the way in which these sort of patriarchal constructs uh, around her have shaped the decisions she made and how she tried to exert power in her own life. Um, uh, namely through through her son King, right, who is male and who's an heir to to um, to the, the Rao family. I think it's fascinating, and I think um, women and anybody from in in marginalized positions like have always done this over time. Dalit people, you know, black people, um, people who are gay and trans, and you know, like disabled people with disabilities have always sort of like found ways to um, to interestingly exert agency and power. And because the novel in some ways is like, like agent, the concept of agency is central, I think, to like just what a novel is, right? Like it's, it's a person exerting agency and that creates a, generates a plot, right? Um, and then that plot um, exerts some changes on the character themselves. Like, that fact about womanhood um, felt like, like the, the novel feels like a really natural place to explore some of those ideas. Well, one of the ways I really love you as a writer in the world, in public, is how generous you've been about sharing in essays and in interviews about the journey and its challenges over the 13 years of, of bringing the immortal King Rao into the world. Setbacks such as your first agent firing you after you sent them a draft or how an editor of yours was asked to stage an intervention when every time you received a manuscript back from them, uh, you wanted to add, or you did add more to it or how you, (laughs) or how you wrote backstories. This is the one I can't believe how you wrote backstories for 100 of King Rao's relatives. And for the longest time, refuse to remove them. <laughs> but but here you are, many, many drafts later, uh, many times thinking it was ready to go, and then life intervening otherwise, having uh, surmounted the hurdles. And I know you have 
a story collection coming out next year. And I would love to hear about that if you have anything you want to say about it. But I also wondered if, um, have these two books taken up all your, your time more recently, or are you working on something else as, as we await what comes next? Oh, that's such a generous question. Thank you for, for saying that. Um, it's funny because it happens to just, you know, be the truth that there have been all these setbacks along the way, like there are for many of us. And hopefully it's helpful to, to others to hear about, hear about all that. Um, uh, I am working on a story story collection. I'm working on edits on this story collection called This Is Salvaged, which Norton is putting out next year. And that's also a book I've been working on for a really long time. A lot of those are stories that I started, you know, in college and in my 20s. And at the same time, in parallel, I'll mention this because you referred to some of these pieces. Um, I'm trying to put together a collection of essays Um sort of like experimental tech informed essays, like the essay ghosts that you referred to um, and the essay about Google searches where I compiled all these Google searches over 10 years. Um, uh, I, I just find myself really fascinated by, I think form in general as a writer and like the way in which the tools, again, speaking of tools that which we've sp spoken about a bunch, um, the way in which like the tools that are available to us as writers, as artists can like, influence the way in which ideas come onto the page in new ways. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking at like a sort of collection of essays that deal with that in various different ways. I love that. Well, thank you for being on the show today, Wahani. Thank you so much for having me. This was really a privilege. We're talking today to Wahani Vara, the author of The Immortal King Rao. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the Volunteer Powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. More of Wahini Vara's work, her essays and journalism, and much more can be found at wahinivara.com. For the bonus audio, Wahini reads from and discusses her award-winning essay, Ghosts, about finally being able to write about and into the grief around the loss of her sister, by engaging with the artificial intelligence called GPT-3. This joins bonus audio from everyone from Garth Greenwell, to Miriam Taves, to Ada Lee Moan, to Victoria Chang. You can find out more about subscribing to the bonus audio and the many other potential benefits of becoming a listener supporter at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Jacob Valla in the art department, Becky Kramer in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of Summer and Winter Tin House Writer Workshops. And finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. <laughs> <laughs>